Anne Enright's most recent novel was the international bestseller The Gathering, winner of the 2007 Man Booker Prize. Her three previous novels are The Pleasure of Eliza Lynch, What Are You Like, a finalist for the Whitbread Novel Award and winner of the Encore Award, and The Wig My Father Wore. She's also the author of award-winning short story collections. She's written for The New Yorker, The Parish Review, The Guardian, Harper's, and The Penguin Book of Irish Fiction. She lives in Dublin, and we're talking today about her latest collection of short stories, even though it spans a 20-year period. It's called Yesterday's Weather. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. It's nice to be here. You sure? I'll, I'll tell you later, actually. So far, so What I'd like to do is I'd like to drill you with the same sort of, they're not questions, but use as structure for our conversation some of the thoughts of Flannery O'Connor on the short story. Mm -hmm. I've done this with a couple of other prominent short story writers and I'm doing a little bit of a series. My questions are going to be similar, so my job's pretty easy. Although I will listen to you and respond. uh, If you come up with something that's particularly shocking then right uh, but to start with your book your latest book yesterday's weather i saw happy days recently samuel beckett's happy days with fiona shaw no no this was in canada oh, so, okay uh, yeah i saw it last week oh did with you fiona shaw. okay yeah. which lucky, is wonderful lucky you yeah. fabulous fantastic I, I saw her in medea yeah Medea's wonderful as well but uh it strikes me that that play pretty well summarizes exactly what you're doing with your short stories. Oh, well, that's interesting, because I was looking at Happy Days and saying, you know, when people say your your work is dark or your work is bleak, or I don't know why I feel I should defend myself. And I said, well, you know, nobody complained to Beckett. And there's Winnie in Happy Days, who's basically a housewife with a problem. You can say that of my characters, too. They're basically housewives with problems. Yes. Um, Winnie's problem, as you know, is that she's buried up to her neck and <laughs> her waist and then her neck and then let the days keep going by. I mean, I saw it as quite an optimistic play. She, here she is, so kind of claustrophobically trapped. Yeah. And yet she continues on and she deals with it. She's incredibly spirited. I mean, but you'd think part of the pain for the audience is knowing that her spirit, you know, that spiritedness, that uh, optimism, and she says, then that's what I find so wonderful she keeps saying and she keeps saying i know this is going to be another happy day um the audience knows that it's not so there is a kind of disconnection between us and her where i don't think that's the case in my work particularly i don't think my characters the, the the liberation they find in their in the voice in their own voice i don't think we just laugh at them and say well they're wrong you know No, I think what I took from what I read of your book was these are some difficult situations that Mm -hmm. we all deal with, affairs and, you know, having to do the diapers and and just the the regular daily grind, and yet it's not killing them. No, but that's that's what people do. I mean, that's just what people do. That's what we all do. We have to do it. Yeah. They're just living their lives. Yeah, but when they're, I suppose when they're not in the mess, they want to be in the mess. Or at least they want to have some of that tension or there's a, a desire to get away from the boredom. They have small lives and large thoughts, you know, that people do. 
that's what people do. Um, I I was reared in the kind of house where we were we were ordinary. My mother was always very proud of people being ordinary, or us being ordinary, or whatever. And I thought that we weren't ordinary at all. And I, I didn't think that the people I knew were particularly ordinary. And I think especially that generation, my mother's generation of women who stayed at home, must have been a very strong influence or an agitation for me. This insistence that they were not ordinary, you know. Um, uh, and I suppose the idea that you are ordinary is a way of keeping you in your box, you know. There is she a was keeping of, you in your box, you think? Oh, no, or keeping herself in her box, right. or, you know, or, or, or that society, that suburban society in the 60s and 70s in Ireland was was very much the lid was just being kept down on something which was the change that had already that had not yet been acknowledged in in all our lives women's lives particularly i thought beckett got the the plight of women pretty well, effectively you know, i was pretty impressed with I, I want to get sort of post post gender on all of this you know beckett wrote about about women and nobody thought he was a feminist particularly what he was writing about was the human condition and it was particularly visible to him in these female lives. And so I'd make a small claim for the same kind of impulse and say, actually, when I'm not talking about women's lives and how they could be bettered, I'm talking about how we, how we live, you know, it's, it's, a, it's the problems are existential. And in fact, that's, a, that's something that Flannery O'Connor gets to about, you know, if, you're, if you write with a theme uh, in mind, as opposed to concentrating on characters. Well, you always go to the primary sources, you always go to the first causes, if you can, you always strip it back down. Mm. If, you, if you're working ideologically, uh, an ideology is something already distilled from life, and it's already, it's a kind of language that dies as soon as it's spoken. Mm. So if you're going to refresh the language, you go, you go before ideology. I mean, I have a character who sells handbags in Dublin, and she falls in love with a woman who comes to her counter, much to her own surprise. She doesn't even know she's gay, right? She, and, and by the end of the story, she still doesn't know she's gay. She's just fallen in love with a woman who came to her counter and picked up an Argentinian calfskin bag. So it's, she's before the label, yeah. she's before the ideology. It's, it's actually that moment of breaking through is really interesting. Breaking through for the character? Yeah, for, for the character. The, this, uh, this epiphany, this Yeah, well, the moment before knowing is actually interesting. The moment before the word comes. Before pu putting a label on yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting as a writer to, to get your character to that place. Well, I, it's a place that I find really sort of shifts obscure sort of emotions and blockages. <laughs> I just really like that, whatever it is. It's funny, I mean, perhaps the reader would see it where she is blind to it. Yeah, well, she's, she's not entirely blind. She hasn't described it in, social, in a social way. So mm -hmm. it's just experience in that story. It's just, so, and, and that to me is wonderful. I'm speaking with Anne Enright, who has won the Booker. There's a label. Uh -huh. For The Gathering, and has come out with, or... Her publisher has come out with a collection of your stories that go from the past up to the present. That's the way it's laid out. Yeah, it starts yeah. with the most recent stories. It goes back to my earliest stories. Okay. That was very weird. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I, I don't know that I'd necessarily want to go there. 
right now. Where, where I want to go is to, is to Flannery. Mm-hmm. And, um... He's one of my great heroes, actually. Well, I'm glad to, to bring her into our conversation mm-hmm. and keep her alive. Mm-hmm. In fact, you talked about experiences, and one of the things that she starts off with is it's the importance of getting to that experience through the senses. Yes. And I just wonder how you do that. Well, I don't know. I'm much asked about, you know, how close my characters are to their sensory experience, like this is some sort of freakish thing, but I don't think we have anything else particularly. Well, that's how you know. we know the world, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, there's no other place to live than in the body. So, I mean, and, and my characters do live in their bodies, and, and that's how they, it's part of the way they experience the world. I don't know whether I do it deliberately or... It's just, to me, a much more vivid way of bringing something to the reader. I'm, if I ever teach, I say the five senses must be present in every sentence. Every sentence? Yes, every sentence. That's going to be a long sentence. No, one of them. One oh, of one the five sentences. <laughs> sorry. Right. Well, sorry, one of the five sentences. <laughs> or the reader can't inhabit it imaginatively. Or relate or get hooked in or... Well, I remember reading a book once, and, and at the end of it, there was a red basin, and suddenly, wow. I mean, suddenly something happened in my head, and I realised it was the first colour in that book. And the noise it made in my head was wonderful. You know, Emily mm. Dickinson's the, the yellow noise. Carlos William Carlos. Is it the, trim, the trumpet? The red uh, wheelbarrow. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow, glazed with rain beside the white chickens. Yeah. Yeah. Well... And it's funny how that that's the visual rings a big loud bell. Well, I like mean that poem is an exquisite sort of journey through the senses, but it starts with so much depends upon you know. That's what the writer's always doing is trying to say how do you make it matter you know. I mean, and in the poem it matters just because he says it does, and that's wonderful too. Sometimes I think you write best if you're. The way people describe, you know, the hours before a death, you know, then he, he had a cup of tea at nine o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> and they describe these terribly... Sp- and then at, at quarter to ten, his cousin arrived at the door. And all of these are things that are amazingly portentous. And that's actually what writers do all the time. They write these things that they're like, as though they're very important, as if someone was going to die at the end of the paragraph. Um, and, of course... That's not always what the story's about, but we just say, look at this, look at this, that happened and that happened, mm-hmm. and get that intensity. No, it's a selective, really, you're you're selecting these details. I mean, that's basically yeah. what you're doing. Yeah, As you're opposed to trying it. to tell like, everything that was there. Sure. But you're telling it as though it's important, so it is important. Yeah. Um, even though the things might be quite banal. Yeah, and in fact, the reader, that's what goes through the reader's mind. Mm-hmm. Well, why, why, why did they pick that one? Exactly. Why did you choose that detail? Mm-hmm. Okay, details where we've we've covered that off then. Mm-hmm. Right. Perfect. Take. Uh, well, do you want to do details? Details. What yeah. do you mean by details? Well, how you see details, how you write about details. Because Flannery as, says as this is important. Using them metaphorically, as using what is it? Met- synonymy or metaphor? But you know that. No, no, oh, no, just just specific. You talked about the cup of tea. Yeah. Well, why did you choose that cup of tea? Sure. I don't know. You mean physical details? I think that's what she means. Yeah, you just have to be particular. She's just this is about good writing. All if if you want to write well, you have to be particular and absolutely particular. 
Yeah, I'm sort of jumping to the end, but but in terms of how she had listed these things, and she talks about the good short story revealing the mystery of existence by showing the concrete. Yeah, well, you see, that's why in Flannery O'Connor's case, particularly, yeah. she has to be she has to be completely particular, completely concrete, very small in her focus, because the transcendent moment at the end of those short stories is supposed to, you know, it, it blows you away. So well, it becomes symbolic, and it becomes much more than just a short story, it's a, it's big. Yeah, yeah, well, she, this is part of her religious sensibility, you know, she was, she believed in transcendence as a possibility in people's lives. And actually, she's a huge influence on, on me, if I think about it, I mean, I read her very early on. And the moments of, the lives she describes are harder, and the moments of transcendence are harder, actually, than what happens in my work, I think. Harder to what for the individual to achieve, like bigger or more painful. Oh, the lessons are more severe. Yes, harsh. It's all quite harsh. All more extreme. Yeah, well, when it breaks through to that moment, it's the, you can feel the breaking. <laughs> I mean, it's like yeah. so. This is the only time now that I can accuse myself of being a soft writer, because compared to Flannery O'Connor, <laughs> I'm a really soft. Right, writer. right. And, but yeah, you're not certainly not labelled that way. No, 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 no. Beginning, middle, and end? Yes, I do them. Usually in that order, actually, when short stories. Don't go I, back to friend? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's actually a very instinctual form for me. I just, uh, I seem to know how the story should be ordered. I write in sonata form. I'm getting very tired of this. I write in threes all the time. What do you mean you're getting tired of it? Well, you yeah, know, if you recognize a pattern in your work, you say, well, maybe I should do something else now do a five-act short story right. and, and, you know, take a Shakespearean structure or something. But I write in threes. I it's can't remember what Frank O'Connor called his exposition, development and resolution, essentially. With some kind of problem that needs to be solved. Yeah, there's, you, you know, I mean, the only thing that has to happen in a story is that something must change. Mm -hmm. That's all that has to happen. And, that, and it's kind of hard sometimes to make that happen. It doesn't have to be a big change. No. Just something must change. Which is sort of interesting because it has to be an abrupt change because you can't, you can't develop a character particularly well in a short story, whereas in a novel, you've, you've, over a long period of time, you can kind of follow... Yeah, no, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be a personal... It's not about personal development particularly. It's Which, about a change of weather. Or moment. meeting someone or, or taking a core class or anything, really, I but suppose. You think that's... My characters do that? No, you just said... Uh, it's not about personal of, development. Of, uh, no, a change of weather. Yes. You know, classes do, do develop your... Per yeah. yeah. But I'm just saying, you've just said anything, right? Anything. Yeah, it's the moment around which you're near... When things become... Something becomes clear, change becomes clear. It can be extremely slight. You know, if you think about the moment when a fly stops buzzing against the window and is gone. But that's a short story moment. Isn't that funny? Because I just read Virginia Woolf's The Moth. Oh, uh, yeah. And that's the whole story, is the moth up against the window. Right, okay. And how wonderful that inspiration, that little moth dies. Yeah. But it's uh, full of energy. Mm. But anyway, uh, there's a change there. I mean, the, the moth dies. Yes. Uh, well, there's a change when the fly goes out the window. Everybody feels a bit better. And, and, and so even though it's a very slight shift, it's a significant one. But 
my stories are not about personal development, you know, I mean, or my books are not about personal development. I mean, they're, they're in the outside, external, social, overt sort of way. They're about, in the gathering, at the end of the gathering, the, the character re-inhabits her life. She inhabits her life again. Some people didn't find that enough of a happy ending. I thought that was an incredibly... It's a difficult thing to do, and she achieves it, and I was very pleased for her. <laughs> and so I was like, what do you want her to do? You know, fall in love, have a baby, yeah, go on married. Oprah. Go on Oprah, that'll solve everything. <laughs> She'd be famous. She'd be famous, yeah. And it, it was a particular, it was young women who thought that, that something like that should happen. Something bigger. Something sillier, you know. Yeah. When you can separate theme from meaning, you can be sure the story isn't a good one. Yes, yeah, that, that, that works, I suppose. In other words, it's sort of what we were talking about, uh, I don't know if it was on or off the microphone, but uh, about having some sort of predetermined message you want to get across. Sure. Interfering with... Well, it's, uh, all, it's the old the film writer's rule that your theme should be in every scene, mm. but never stated in any of them. Yeah. yeah. Meaning has to be embodied in it, made concrete by it. It being... I'm not sure. Be sure the story isn't, is a good one. The story oh, the must be the story. The meaning has to be embodied in the story and made concrete by it, which is, I think, what you've just said with the filmmaker. Right. A way to say something that can't be said any other way, that's, that's a short story, it takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. Yes. It is, it's a, it is the message, you know. You it, can't say it any other way? No. I mean, it's complete unto itself. So do you kind of chisel it down? Actually, I spent enormous amounts of time chiseling in, in my early, in my youth. But now I, kind of, I, can, I can pretty much just, not just write them. Some of them are, I, I, I wouldn't mind getting a chisel to now. <laughs> I'm having another little We could do that. Tap, 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 yes. But I suppose what they can, readers can see then is the, some of the stuff that you would like to chisel at the end of the book? You've, you've provided us with all the chis the most chiseled stuff. Yeah, well, this anthology, because it goes backwards through it, my, my writing life, if, if people felt sort of particularly mean, they could, <laughs> they could say, God, she went off. <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, she was much better when she was younger. Or they could say, God, this young stuff is really stupid. But, I mean, so it's just an extra narrative, really. But yeah. that, that's for, for, the, for the reader to to enjoy or not. You can tell a story because a statement is inadequate. Yeah. Statements only help you experience the meaning of the story. Fiction is experienced meaning, not abstract. Well, that's what we were talking about earlier, about ideology, that if you've distilled these kind of slogans out of your life, then you can't, you have to get behind them to write. You can't use those slogans to start off your writing. But what I think yeah, what she's saying, though, is that the, you have to actually feel, you want to get the reader to experience these changes, these awarenesses, yes. before they'll get any meaning from the story. Yes. Yeah, it's an experience. A story yeah. is an experience. You know, the reading of a story is an experience as well. So you're a realist, then? Me? Yeah. Oh, Jesus, I don't know. Uh, Whatever what that term. Basically, try, you're trying to replicate what goes on in real life so you can produce a feeling. 
No, no. I mean, you use you use lived experience. You use concrete experience, physical experience, sensory sensory experience, to make the situation vivid and clear to the reader. But I'm not a naturalist or a realist. The way that Flannery O'Connor breaks into transcendence at the end of her her stories, my stories are always trying for transcendence. My sentences are always looking for the metaphor. Or they're always looking for the surprise at the end of the sentence. The paragraphs are always looking for the surprise. I like my language to keep moving, you know. I don't want it to settle and be still. So although the lived experience is the, is the, is the fundamental starting place, it's the place where you stand, the reach of the language, I hope, is, is quite high, you know. And to do that, I mean, and to make the reach, as it were, I would use uh, cadence and rhythm and very particularly rhythm to to have a more not a lyrical impact but perhaps a poetic impact. Yeah, actually it's funny. I've noticed I noticed that you used not if not rhyming, you used words alliteration but they weren't right next to each other. They were you know, in the next sentence you you made a point of using it, you can you well, I, I don't do all this technical stuff deliberately, no. particularly, but you, you can... But you read it out loud, I imagine. To, so I used to, I don't have to do that anymore now, mm -hmm. I think, but the, the, the repetitions of various sort of vowel sounds within a paragraph, you can, uh, yeah, I, I could track them, and, and I could have, you know, thin, icky, ee sort of <laughs> sounds in one paragraph, and, mm. and, and, and long, longer sounds in another paragraph, and I live not in terror, but I'm fed up with my spawn days, I think they're called at the end, not yet dead, these three syllables at the end of, uh, you know, to finish, uh, to finish a, a paragraph or something. So I don't, I take them out, I'm, uh, because you get kind of trite if you, if these things turn into tricks. You mean like a dark and stormy night kind of thing? Yes. Too mm -hmm. cliche or too... Well, the rhythm is the too rhythm cliche. Is too yeah. But if you look at bardic Irish poetry and how it's constructed. This is where Dylan Thomas would have taken a lot of his inspiration from and a, lot, a number of Irish poets. They repeat the vowel sounds within the, within the stanza, repeat and vary the vowel sounds within the stanza and the end rhyme is not the important thing. Um, so it's the, the rhyme, the assonance and the, uh, within the fabric of the line, as it were, in, in the line. And they draw patterns from that. And I like that. Whether I do it or not, I really like that idea. And I hope I do it. You, well, I've seen yeah. it, yeah. So it's, a, it's just, a, I suppose it's a trick. That's why I'm saying you have to be careful you don't get too trite about it. Yes, exactly. Or too, yeah. too obvious. Sure. A, a too obvious a technique because the breeder then feels that you're trying to manipulate them. or Yeah, exactly. Get, yeah, okay. To state as little as possible Connections from things shown gives depth, increases story in every direction, how it escapes being... You know, these are just my notes here, so I don't, I'm just... To state as little as possible... To state as little as possible, yeah, that's show not tell, really. That's the, the writers. Show not tell, but also chiseling. Yeah. And also not, as we discussed before, not giving everything, not every detail, but just chosen details. Yes. The, yeah, the, the connections that from the things that you've shown it is the way to give depth and it increases the story in every direction. Connections from things shown. You're tracing connections that may be very slight, you know, or un, 
that nobody had thought of before somehow. It's just a kind of a very delicate tracery of, of, of connections. And that's very satisfying if that's what it, the story does. That's perhaps what, what the satisfaction of it is there. So. We're closing in on the end here. Okay. I don't know if I've pummeled you hard enough, though. <laughs> um, but I am speaking with Anne Enright, who is the uh, author of Yesterday's Weather, a collection of short stories that you've written over the past 20 years. And we're, we're riffing off Flannery O'Connor, who has said that the character's personality creates the action of the good short story. Well, not their characters, not their personalities, their voices are the, the, the motor, of the engine of, my, of a lot of my work. And so what's the difference? Just the way they speak? Yeah, it, it, it's not so much the spoken word. I take an awful lot from, as Beckett does, from, from the, the way people speak um, and the way particular characters speak. I'm probably more generous to the characters than Beckett is in that regard. But they give me the, the, the rhythm and the rhythm of their thought. That's what makes the story go for me, is their voice. Often, because a lot of the time it's first-person uh, subjective. Uh, Still don't understand. You don't understand? No. I don't know. What happens when you speak? Well, there's a lot. I mean, there's a huge amount that uh, that you... You're not listening to the meaning of my words, necessarily. You're hearing the different tones and uh -huh. pitches and uh, that sort of thing. And Plus, there's the body language. Uh -huh. But what are you saying when you say the voice? Yeah, I mean, well, actually, what happens when people speak? What happens when something is articulated? Actually, the stories in the, usually women's voices, I've begun to realize they're not the spoken word. They're not the word in the room. They're, 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 the word, they're their inner voices. They're the voices in their head. Mm -hmm. uh, they're on the brink of articulation. I mean, if they were the voices in the room, it would be a completely different matter. But they're the voice on the phone. Do you know what I mean? The, the bodiless voice. Yeah, they're 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 very intimate voice, and they're very um, uh, and they're not talking to a crowd. They're, they're either talking, talking to, to themselves, themselves or talking to someone on the phone, perhaps. Or I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't place it physically who they're talking to. You know, they uh, they're not talking in bed. They're, they're they're you know, but they're talking very close to someone. It's their most intimate voice. It is their most intimate voice, yeah. Um, and it's quite an uncensored voice. Okay. But which is distinctive because I think we censor our inner thoughts all the time. Do you think so? I think we do, We're not yeah. being honest with ourselves? That's an interesting rhythm, isn't it, actually? I must write a story about that. Um, they're they're uh, afraid to admit things to themselves. But I mean, the, the the writing is all very artificial because we don't think in our heads in those fully formed sentences. Mm -hmm. Or if we do, we're fretful, we're half mad. You know what I mean? We're ranting in our heads. Yeah. If, yeah. You're, if you're monologuing in your head, that's a different thing. Yeah. So, so these stories would get somewhere between those two states. These are really hard questions for the first thing in the morning, is Especially after you've been out uh, for a lovely dinner the night before. Uh, very, very, very nice dinner. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
Uh, well, we've only got a few more to go here. Start to, so in other words, what she's saying is you start with a real personality and then something is bound to happen. And I think what she saw with a lot of students that she taught was the other way around. People would come up with some kind of story and then try and fit the characters in. Right. Well, I mean, I, I, my characters are very available to me, actually. They're there. And, they, and they're there, not before the story, they're there as I write. You know, it all happens as you, as in the writing in the process. of it, in the process yeah. of writing it. Yeah, yeah actually, Paul Muldoon has said something about that. Yes. The epiphany is in the actual writing itself. Yes. You don't have to know what is going to happen before you begin. That's no, what, that's, 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 that's brilliant. And people keep saying to me, this year, everyone's so intrigued by the creative process. I yeah. really feel like saying, you write. That's what you do. You sit down. And it you, happens. You write the words and then <laughs> and then it happens. Yeah. And it's almost like I'm, they're, they're terrifying me now that maybe it won't happen. How does it happen? How does it happen? You don't think about how it no. happens. You, you just, just write. do it, you know? Yeah, okay. Sounding like Nike there. Uh, who? Nike, the uh, sports. Uh, oh God! Yes, thank you. Yeah, God has a victory. You ought to be able to discover something from your stories. If you don't, probably no one else will. Well, that is the, the the wonderful thing about writing is that you can be surprised by what you've written. When that happens, I'm sure you know I've got something good here. Well. Because my language is about surprise, it's like if it's not happening, I just, you know, I wouldn't be there at all. And it is the great pleasure. I mean, it is the great pleasure of the whole process. You know, Paul Clay had this uh, drawing called Taking a Line for a Walk. We did it in school when we were kids. You take a line for a walk. And it, they, the teacher said it's taking a lion for a walk. And so you just draw a line on the page. Right? I didn't know it was Paul Clay. I saw it much later in life. And I just think that that's what you're doing. You're taking the line for a while. What a great way <laughs> You're going to see, see where this one goes. Wonderful. Yeah. That's what you do in a conversation, too. And sure. uh, I want to thank you for... Uh, getting out of bed. Getting out of bed and, uh, <laughs> and taking this line, uh, this line um, for a walk. Sorry, have we covered it? Is there anything that you've... Well, I've actually said? learned a few things, so I have to go home and think about, you know, the place of the voice in your head and all kinds of things like that. So have you? Have we said everything? It's just Flannery we kind of covered it. We can say that funny. Flannery O'Connor's funny. I like to be funny. One final question, and that's about James Joyce. Yes. He pretty well did it all. He wasn't funny in his short stories, I can tell you that much. But he did do it all, yes. Is there anything that you can think of that he hasn't done that could be done? I'm, I'm unusual as an Irish writer, in that I don't set myself up against the yardstick of Joyce. Yeah, I'm not even talking about his yardstick. I'm, I'm basically, or him as a yardstick. I'm simply saying he took us inside the, you know, the yeah. content, and then he also took us inside the dream world. Is there anywhere else that uh, can be explored within fiction? Yeah, I, I mean, Joyce is an amazing resource. I mean, Joyce made everything possible for writers, and I'm amazed that people don't take up that freedom and that opportunity. He, he made it possible for Irish women writers, among other things, and, and I'm claiming him as an honorary woman, you know, because uh, he wrote the way women are accused of writing, inside people's heads, nothing much happens. Mm -hmm. uh, very interested in the domestic, all of that, so he's the first Irish woman writer of the uh, 20th century. But I'm amazed that people haven't taken that freedom 
more. The freedom what? The things that he's explored and using them? Well, writers sometimes say because of this shadow of Joyce, you know, it's different oh. than the shadow of Joyce. So, no, he shone a great light. I don't mind that he's done it all. I don't know if there's more to do. I mean, I think every generation needs its voices and every time needs its voices. So, although Joyce's voice spanned many more decades than perhaps mine will do, I, I, I'm, I'm happy just to truck along. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. What a great interview. Oh, good. <laughs> I've been speaking with Anne Enright, who is the author of the... I'm going to keep mentioning the booker because, I mean, it's a big deal. It is a deal, yeah. Yeah, of The Gathering, a novel. And this latest work of a collection of short stories is called Yesterday's Weather. Thank you.